hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you with support from OcuSleep. If you have trouble falling asleep at night, OcuSleep might be just the thing for you. We've all heard about the importance of melatonin and healthy sleep. Well, when we get a lot of artificial light in the evening before bed, it signals our brains to hold it back. Think computers, phones, TVs. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. OcuSleep glasses were developed by two eye doctors in Long Island, New York. They block the specific wavelengths of light responsible for disrupting melatonin's natural release. You wear them one to two hours before bed and just do your normal stuff. By the time you're ready for sleep, OcuSleep glasses will have helped your body produce the optimal amount of melatonin safely and naturally. According to OcuSleep, most people notice having an easier time falling asleep within a week of wearing the glasses. OcuSleep glasses are cute and comfortable, and they're available with or without prescription lenses. Visit OcuSleep.com for more information and receive $40 off and free shipping with the code Nocturne. That's OcuSleep.com, O-C-U-S-L-E-E-P.com with the code Nocturne for $40 off and free shipping. Listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. There's nothing like a small rural town. Unlike living in a city, there's no hiding under a cloak of anonymity, and that can be both a good and bad thing. People who choose to live in such places are often possessed of a fierce independence and also some colorful eccentricity, which is often graciously accepted or even embraced by neighbors. People in these towns tend to look out for each other in a singular way. But one of the biggest things about small rural towns is that waiting for someone else to take care of business might mean that business doesn't get done. I'm sure sooner or later we'd have been able to catch up to the perpetrator, but the way they worked, it got it done a lot quicker with a lot less damage to the community. You're on order. Copter 104, my name is Carrie Morrissey, just turned 50. I'm a lawyer, criminal defense. I am Sarah Paul, 54. I report on fires in Northern California for an app called Watch Duty. I also have a wildfire mitigation business helping people harden their homes against vegetation fires. I live in Monte Rio, California. Monte Rio is a little bit west of Guerneville. Monte Rio is a cute little mountain town. Between Guerneville and Jenner. It's a little town on the river. It's right on the Russian River. It's about 15 to 20 minutes from the coast. Lots of redwood forest with hills and ravines and gulches and some meadows here and there, lots of up and down. Uh, it's a beautiful, quiet place. Population of maybe a little over a thousand people. At most 3,000 people. It swells a bit during the summer as more people spend time there, but it's 
you know, it's, it's this tiny little community. It has a, a good sense of community and there's a lot of people that live there who, you know, really care about the town and keeping it nice and improving it as best they can. Monterio means river and mountains, and that's exactly what we have. We have a glorious river running through the middle of our little town and, you know, 1,400-foot mountains on either side. And occasionally someone tries to set those hills on fire. It's a redwood forest, so compared to a lot of California, Northern California, it probably stays more moist than other areas. So we don't have... I think a lot of the same fire danger that you may see just half an hour away. But because the forest is so dense and so vast, there's a lot of duff on the forest floor, depending on where you are, six to 18 inches of just what we call redwood droppings. There's lots and lots of fuel, lots of timber readily available to burn. So if a fire starts out there, it's easy for it to take off. Monterio is nestled amongst redwoods. The entire area would be in what we call the WUI, W-U-I, in mitigation terms. That's the wildland urban interface. So very susceptible to fire and flame. Um, and the whole town is in the WUI. There's homes in the forest that border the forest everywhere, all around the town. Monterio's roads run through the valleys, and the hills are not easily accessible. There are some fire roads, and there are some trails, but you know, once you get 200 feet up, you are, you're, you're hacking through the woods. So that is a huge problem when it comes to firefighting. We have a very good fire department. We've had the same fire chief for 30, 35 years, I think a, a very long time. Chief 5400 is legend in Northern California. He is the fire chief from Monterio. His name is Steve Baxman. Hey, my name is Steve Baxman, and I'm the fire chief of the Monterio Fire District. And he is everywhere. He is really all we have in the way of law enforcement, and he knows absolutely everyone in town, and we are very fortunate to have him. I would say in 2020, October of 2020 was when I first felt like I needed to do something. My home is located on Bohemian Highway. Bohemian Highway goes through several towns in this part of Northern California. When you get close to Monte Rio, Bohemian Highway becomes smaller and kind of a windy road through this heavily forested area down into the town. And along Bohemian Highway, very close to my home, uh, there were three fires along the road that sort of went down in the direction of town. And I don't know if it was ever really determined whether those fires were homeless encampment fires. They're all around us in the hills. People were sleeping in the hills, had camps going and all. So it started from a warming fire or a cooking fire and there was a market effort to help those folks get rehoused and get out of the woods. But that is what caused me to think something's going on out there. So maybe I should start to pay attention because I have a house right here and a family <laughs> living right here. 
When Carrie decided to start paying attention, she wasn't kidding around. So that was when I bought two cameras, small game cameras, and I did put them up in the forest. I just strapped them to a tree, maybe three or four feet off the ground. Where the cameras were was not too far off the road, and I placed them there to see people coming and going. And I did get video footage of people, you know, moving around back there, which of course I never realized that people were spending a lot of time back there, because it's not, there aren't trails. It's not a place where people go to hike. I didn't see anything that caused me too much concern in terms of who was back there and what they were doing. So I had those cameras up for maybe a month, I would think, and then things sort of, you know, settled down. I would say about a year later. September of 2021. We had a couple of fires that were suspected arson fires that were out in the forest, kind of off a hiking trail. And that was really when the first thought that, wow, these were suspicious. And we would always look to see if there was a camp and if it came out of a campsite or if it came out. And after a while, they weren't, and it looked like it was something else, like it, like it might have been set. What you do is you eliminate all the other sources. You look and see, was there a power lines close by? Did we have a lightning storm? Is there a camp? Are you, you, you uh, rule out all the possibilities. And then when there's nothing else, then you realize it had to have been purposely set. It wasn't an encampment, it wasn't lightning. Someone started these fires. There's a term we use called a hot set, either a cigarette lighter or one of those torches you use to light uh, barbecues with. So it looks like it was set with a hot set of some sort. There was no other explanation for the fires. We just kind of strung that together that we actually had perhaps a serial arsonist because the fires were happening in different parts of town and all in challenged locations where someone had sort of hiked in, lit a fire, or started a fire and gotten out of there, and then it took the fire crews a while to find them. Carrie was well known to the fire chief by this point. I was talking to him about, you know, how as a community can we come together to try to solve this problem, whether it's arson or whether it's homeless encampments, or what can we do to try to make sure that everyone stays safe. The fire chief took Carrie to one of the burn sites back near the fire road, where you could only get to by car if you had a key to the gate, like he did. He pointed out why he thought the fire had been intentionally set, including that it was started at the base of a hill right on the side of the fire road, where the road went up into the forest. It looked like the fire was set there for just that reason. The fire chief gave Carrie one other important piece of information. He believed that whoever was starting the fires was either riding a bicycle or was on a motorcycle because they were able to get in and out very quickly, and obviously they couldn't be driving a car. Whereas in the past there'd be one or two fires back in the woods, whoever was lighting these fires appeared to be on a roll. We probably had, uh, oh, at least eight or ten fires in the beginning. Between 10 and 15 fires in eight months. There was a, a lot of fires, but luckily we were catching them in time. They weren't getting too big a size to them. 
but he felt exhausted. Well, we were, we were feeling pretty upset. I wasn't happy about it because we have a community to protect. We didn't want something to get, uh, get away and destroy someone's house or property. It's a small fire department. He's a volunteer fire chief. We have one paid person and then we have stipends, which are the kids out of the fire academy that work 24-hour shifts. So we have a combination of uh, one paid person, uh, two stipends, and then backed by volunteers. He felt like, absolutely, I share your concern. I think that there are many things that we can do, but it's just me and these three guys. And, you know, we don't really know what to do in terms of doing criminal investigation. They're not police officers. They're firemen. Back in 2020, when the encampment fires began, Carrie started going out into the woods by herself to look at the fire sites and to try to figure out what was going on. Around the same time, she became a member of the Fire Foundation Board of Directors. She made resolving the fire issues in Mario one of her pet projects. Carrie and Sarah had communicated about the fires online through the local Facebook page. And she had reached out and said, was I aware of any encampments that she should visit that we might be worried about causing future fires? And yeah, of course, I had a list. I was trying to get people in the community to come together to try to do something before a fire takes off and potentially burns the town down and maybe even burns the neighboring town down. Sarah told Carrie she had a friend who lived at the base of one of the fire roads where there had been suspicious fires, and he was concerned. Because he would see people coming and going at strange hours, and they didn't appear to be hikers or dog walkers, and she suggested that maybe I would take my two cameras and put them over there in that area. We put up two cameras, and they were sort of facing each other. So the cameras were what we would call covering each other. The cameras, one of which was recording video at the time, picked up some hikers, dog walkers, a few people on bicycles. But pretty soon, they saw images of someone who sparked their interest. What brought my attention to the videos that we had of him was where he was going. He was on the fire road on a bicycle, and he left the fire road, and the camera picked him up going sort of off of kind of an overlook and down into a ravine, and there's nothing there. There's not a hiking trail there. Best case scenario, there's a deer trail there, but it's very difficult and it's very steep. And he didn't, I mean, I hate to say this, but he wasn't dressed like a recreational cyclist. And so we had videos of him on his bicycle kind of disappearing into this area where there were no hiking trails. And then he would come out on his bicycle two or three hours later. And we had that happen twice. So these two cameras were pretty basic. They weren't like the cameras a lot of people have at their homes for security, where you can just look on your phone to see what's happening while you're on vacation. Those were uh, not cellular cameras, so they were just manual cameras that take a memory card. And when I went back to pull the memory cards from the cameras, one of the cameras was missing. Carrie thought maybe she'd just gotten turned around. One tree can look a lot like another. But when she looked more closely at where she remembered placing the second camera, I found the strap that was holding the camera to the tree, 
and it had been burned off. And the straps are really easy to remove. You just pull on them and they loosen from the tree and you can pull the camera off of them. Well, instead of doing that, whoever stole the camera burned the strap. That's how they released it from the tree. That caused me to think that the person who stole the camera, and I did at that point believe that it was the person that I had recorded video of on the other camera, liked to use fire. Now, what had previously been a growing suspicion of arson seemed like a certainty. And it felt like a message. I'm not gonna let you watch me, but I'm gonna let you know I'm here. The first thing I did was I sent a text message to Sarah because I was feeling concerned. I texted and asked her if she was at home. I knew that she lived in that area. I'd never been to her house and I had never met her in person. Uh, one day she called and said, can I come over? She said, yeah, that she was at home and I drove right down the road. Everything's really close. And that was the first day we met. And she came over to show me the burnt strap of a camera that she'd set up in the woods. And this individual who burned the camera could have just removed it, but instead chose to burn the strap and take the camera. That seemed like an interesting message. So I show Sarah the burn strap and she felt concerned also. I took that as a message that someone didn't want to be watched. Now, Carrie had two cameras in the same location. So one camera happened to catch the person who removed the, one camera caught the action. So that was the first indication we had that we had one individual of interest. The pictures they got were from a distance, and the guy was wearing a baseball cap, so it was hard to see his face. He couldn't really see his hair, and so he looked sort of generic, I would say. He looked like a lot of different people. Carrie showed the pictures to some people in the town, including the fire chief, but no one could identify him. But of course he was on a bicycle, and he was moving in the direction of the arson fire that we had had right around that same time. And the fire chief had already told me that he suspected that he was on a bicycle or a motorcycle. So he was kind of fitting the profile to a certain degree. Sarah and Carrie naturally fell into a sort of partnership around trying to figure out what was going on with these recent suspicious fires and who was behind them. So we started to discuss a plan for how to continue to try to bring the community together, almost kind of like a neighborhood watch, you know, just where people could be aware and looking out and trying to make sure that if there was someone in the forest, you know, if, if you saw someone take off on a bicycle onto a forest road or onto a trail, you know, take note of them. Certainly not everyone is up to no good. We understand that. But we were just kind of talking about, gee, what can we do? And they were very hardworking people who care about their community. And when they see there's a, there's a problem, they jump in to see what they can do to solve it. It turns out these two women, who until recently had never met in person, despite living in the same tiny community, were somewhat of an ideal arson sleuthing team. Throughout my legal career, I have intentionally kind of partnered myself with people who I think are smarter than me, where they're sort of the brains and I'm kind of more the muscle. K 
Carrie is a spitfire, scared of nothing. She will march into the woods at a moment's notice. Sarah is really calm and educated and thoughtful. And I'm a little bit more of a hothead. Carrie Morrissey is spunky and fearless. If she's committed to something, she will see it to the end. She's someone I want in my court, and she's been a fantastic partner for me in this process. So when Carrie showed up and showed me this burnt strap, it just left me very uncomfortable. Like, suddenly it was, wow, we may have a problem. But things kind of got quiet, and you know, we have our own lives. So, you know, we just get busy with work and family. Flash forward to March 1st of this year. March 1st was unfortunately a big tragic day in Monterio. While in one part of town, and by town I mean tiny town, a gentleman shot his father and there was a giant manhunt with helicopters overhead. And on that very same day, someone decided to start two fires in the hills. And the sheriff's helicopter actually picked up one of the fires because it was nestled in a little bit of a valley and was not seen from, from the ground level. But that fire became the Alpine Fire. The Alpine Fire. Burned 25 acres and took actually a few weeks to get out. It jumped the containment lines a number of times. We were very lucky on the day of that large fire. The winds were kind to us. No structures were damaged. No structures were taken. But Monterio is a town of primarily wooden houses. And if the wind were blowing in the right direction, it would have been a horrible, horrible day. The day of the Alpine fire, Carrie had one camera up behind Sarah's friend's house. But that one camera got a hit. That camera caught someone leaving the fire. And the person in the picture looked very similar to the picture they had from four or five months earlier. But we didn't have his full face. We could see his head, the back of his hair, dark hair. And he was wearing a red backpack. He had a very large red backpack. So for a while, we just referred to him as Red Backpack Guy. And he was coming from an area where there are no trails. There's no cycling trails, no hiking trails. This is not an area where you generally see people coming from. And it was actually the exact same place that the cameras had picked him up in October of 2021 on the bicycle. Uh, we couldn't tell for sure whether it was the same person that we picked up in 2021 but he certainly was in the same area. And this time he had a red backpack. And so we were kind of interested in who's the person with the red backpack. And we saw a lot of him. I mean, you'd see him biking on the street. You'd see him walking, but we didn't, we couldn't approach him. I was like, okay, this guy was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or is he our guy? With the size of the Alpine fire, the situation was clearly getting more serious and alarming. And then, they had six or seven suspicious fires in one week. It felt like every single day, and sometimes more than once a day, our watch duty app would go off telling us that there was a vegetation fire there. And that's when Carrie and I really committed to this project. We decided that we would really kind of kick it into high gear, and we started putting a lot of information on social media and requests on social media. Does anyone want to get involved? Would anyone come to a meeting? Can we, you know, as a community, get together and talk about how to handle this? I was asking, you know, would anyone contribute money? 
to purchase cameras. We need to put cameras up in the forest. We need to hike these forests. We need to get out there and see what's going on. Monte Rio is not a particularly wealthy town, but individuals there chipped in what they could to help purchase cameras. Then Sarah raised more than $7,000 from a local community organization in a neighboring town. Also, Carrie knows the, quote, Grove Keeper at Bohemian Grove, that super exclusive compound where presidents and billionaires meet in the woods without women and run the world. The land where the fires were was in between my house and the Bohemian Grove. So the Grove had an interest in supporting this project. They bought us 20 cameras, batteries for 20 cameras, and memory cards for 20 cameras, and they just delivered them to my house. When all was said and done, Carrie and Sarah had around 50 cameras. Many of them were texting cameras, which were triggered by motion to take pictures or video and send alerts to their phones. Now it was time to hike through the woods and put up all those cameras. I was thinking, wow, how am I going to do all this by myself? Sarah was the only person who responded and said that she would partner with me to install and monitor cameras, which was fantastic because the job was beginning to feel a little overwhelming to me. We were climbing up and down the hills, carrying a big old ladder to get these cameras appropriately positioned. So we would put them up as high as we could so that they couldn't be stolen if anyone saw them. And I think the ladder is 10 or 12 feet. What we intended to do was essentially surround the town with cameras. And we put every single one of them up. They put the cameras up near hiking trails, wildlife trails, anywhere that looked like a potential path. We would on average get two or three cameras up in a day because it was time-consuming. It took about three months, every weekend for three months, going out, finding the right place, installing the camera, uh, you know, and then starting in this other place in the forest. They set all the cameras to take two pictures every time movement was detected. And every time one of the cameras took a picture, day or night, Sarah and Carrie would get a text on their phones. Oh, constantly awakened during the middle of the night by alerts. Probably 10 to 15 alerts per night. We have a lot of cameras. So throughout the night, we would be texting each other back and forth saying, hey, did you see that on camera 14? Hey, look over there on camera 21, because we were getting motion. And sometimes it was innocent motion, but also we got human motion. And usually when we got human motion in the middle of the night, it was the gentleman we suspected of setting the fires. But my most joyous moments are all the, the wildlife that would pop up in the middle of the night. The bobcats and the skunks and the raccoons. Mountain lions in pairs. Or foxes, so many foxes. Or a deer. Carrie and I would text each other, did you see that? Did you see this? It was amazing to see these animals just in their natural habitat at night. She and I would communicate about the pictures that came in during the night and what we saw and what we thought about what we were seeing. I mean, there was some really cute, beautiful stuff happening amidst all the uncertainty of what is that person over there doing on that camera. With 50 cameras up around the forest, Sarah and Carrie were seeing a lot of stuff. They were also seeing a lot of red backpack guy. We started to see a lot of images of him. Uh, and because the cameras are up high, 
frequently we did not see his face. We would only see the back of his head and his clothes and his red backpack. Very frequently he was coming up from different areas where there was no trail. We would see him come up from kind of a ravine and come up onto a fire road carrying his bicycle kind of on his back. And uh, we would see him do that at all hours of the night, early in the morning. And so we felt like this person with the red backpack was a person of interest to us. Of course, we had 50 cameras out, so there were lots of people that were showing up on the cameras. So we certainly had not settled on him as a primary suspect. We were just kind of wondering, who is this person who's out there with this bicycle at all of these different hours? While Carrie and Sarah were seeing more and more pictures come in of Red Backpack Guy, they still didn't know who he was. And then... We were installing cameras one day, right off of Moscow Road, and we saw him. We were in the forest and we saw him. He was there. We knew it was him because he had the same red backpack on. And we approached him and I said, hey, how you doing? And he responded to me very politely. He said something like, I'm doing well, how are you? And at the same time that he said that, he raised a mask over his face and he walked away very briskly, jumped on his bicycle and took off and got onto Moscow Road and started to ride his bicycle away from us as quickly as he could. So we jumped in my SUV, which we had kind of turned into a mobile surveillance unit. We decided that we were going to follow him because we wanted to get a picture of his face, because we did not have any images of his face, so we couldn't identify him. He was heading down Moscow Road towards a barricade during some heavy rains, part of the road fell into the river. So there's a concrete barricade there, and so that was, I'm sure, the reason that he was headed in that direction. He knew that we were not going to be able to follow him beyond the barricade. But we caught up to him. I'm driving, and Sarah used her cell phone and took several pictures of his face. And his mask was kind of down, sort of near his chin, so at that point in time, you could actually see his face. So we took those pictures to the fire chief, who of course has lived in this town for many, many years. And we said, this is the guy with the red backpack. This is his face. Can you tell us who this person is? And he said, that's Jack Seprish. The fire chief had indicated to me that uh, Jack had been living in the forest for a very long time. So we figured out his name and that sort of began the hunt for this gentleman. I kind of had this philosophy, and I think Sarah shared my philosophy, that the only way to catch this person, if we're going to catch him, is to just monitor his activities all the time as best we could. What we were trying to do was watch him all the time. So he became very much the focus of our lives, of our attention. And we knew he intentionally lived in the woods. 
and we found a number of different camps associated with him in the woods. He's a bit nomadic, you know, he didn't have one place. He went from, from spot to spot, but all within the same town. So we continued to collect images of this person with the red backpack, who we now know to be Jack. We, you know, got some information from community members who told us he's from Monte Rio, he grew up in Monte Rio. And we set up our camera program based on what we found. Carrie and I would go out hiking three days a week and find evidence. Uh, if we found evidence that he was there, we'd set up one of the cameras. And we had put all of these cameras in these places because there had been past fire activity in all of these places. He was the only person who consistently came up in all of those areas. And we were picking this same gentleman up on most of these cameras, frankly. You know, some cameras just picked up dog walkers and deer and the occasional mountain lion or bobcat. But for the most part, the number one thing we were finding was this particular individual. At this point, Sarah and Carrie strongly suspected that Jack was the one lighting the fires. But remember, Carrie's a defense attorney. And also, these are really nice ladies. We still were not 100% sure because... It's hard to be sure, you know? It's hard to be sure when all you have are pictures of this person who's moving around the forest at all hours of the day and night um, on a bicycle. He, that was his home. You know, we grew to understand that the forest was his home. So it made it seem a little less suspicious that he's moving around because that's where he's living. We didn't see much fire in the texting images, but we did find video of him lighting fire in one of the old school trail cameras. And we knew from his camps that he would light small little fires, little one by one foot fires that just wouldn't necessarily take off. He'd certainly enjoyed lighting things. So we found lots of evidence of small fires, but we didn't get any grand flames on the texting cameras. You know, so you're just kind of waiting to see when the next fire starts. I think it was May 26th. That's the night of the Warriors game. I just sat down on my sofa to watch the Warriors game. You know, we had all of our cameras in place. We were getting usual pictures of Jack daily, sometimes at night, here, there, and everywhere. And all of a sudden, Sarah texted me and said, is that a picture of Jack on camera R6? And R6 was a camera that we would pick him up on pretty regularly. At 5.31, we see our suspect go up the hill. And I looked at my phone, I said, yeah, I think it is. But I wasn't terribly worried. R6 is very close to my house. Five minutes later, he comes back down, which is unusual. You can't actually reach his camp in five minutes. It takes longer. Also, he was running at a high rate of speed, which was unusual, this time without his shirt. And we both went, whoa, what's just happened over there? And then she texted me and she said, do you think that's him again on R18? And then we saw him pop up on a different camera about a mile away. R18 is even closer to my house, about a mile closer to my house. And I looked at it, I said, yeah, you know, you can't see him very well, but that looks like that's probably him. And he comes out one minute later. That was a very fast trip. 
And now keep in mind, I'm a fire reporter, so I am getting scanner traffic. I know there's a fire on Bohemian Highway, but Carrie doesn't. And then the next picture that I saw that came up on my phone from R6 was of a fireman dragging a fire hose up the hill. So then Carrie says, what the heck are all those firemen doing on our camera? And it was at that moment that I thought, oh my God, there's a fire there. I felt like I was calling Sarah and Sarah was calling me at the exact same time. So we ended up on the phone. She was, I think, driving to Oakland. I was driving when all this was going down. So she wasn't in Monte Rio. And we had this very fast, disorganized, conversation about, is there a fire? Oh my God. Uh, and I said, I'm gonna change my clothes and head down there. When she got to the site of the fire, Carrie found a highway patrol officer directing traffic around the fire trucks on Bohemian Highway. And the fire was big, it was hot. As I was standing on the road, I could feel the heat on my face. The fire had climbed very high up in the trees. Uh, it wasn't just a little bit of smoke. It was what felt like a big fire that you could really see taking off. Lots of different fire engines were arriving during that time. Because Carrie's on the board of directors for the fire department, she can usually get a little closer than other civilians at burn sites and talk to the firefighters. So I, when I went down there, I wanted to talk to... Steve Baxman, our fire chief, because I wanted to tell him, look, we have him on the camera. Like, we wanted to say, it's working. You know, our plan is working. She didn't see Steve, but she saw one of the local firefighters who she knew. And I said, hey, where's Steve? And he said he's at a parade in Healdsburg. Yeah, I was in Healdsburg at a parade. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Hillsburg every year has an FFA parade, Future Farmers of America, and then they go into three-day carnival, and I go to the parade. The man is always there. The one day that he's at a parade in Healdsburg is the day that this fire breaks out and we've got these pictures. So I called him on the phone. And I was sitting in line at the parade in a fire truck and I got called on the phone by someone said, hey, I think we have another fire on Bohemian Highway. He was racing back to Monte Rio from Hillsburg. He had left the parade, was coming back. A bunch of firefighters from Cal Fire began to arrive, and because they don't know me and they're not a part of our local fire department, I was trying to explain to them, we have him on our cameras here, but we also have him on our cameras 10 minutes later, a mile down the road. Carrie and Sarah felt sure that what they'd seen was Red Backpack Guy, now known to be Jack, lighting one fire, running a mile down the way, and then lighting a second one. But they were the only ones who'd seen the picture showing this. They were the only ones who knew that there might be a second fire. And Carrie was trying desperately to make this known. We need to go down there and see what's going on down there. I wasn't getting much of a reaction to that request because they weren't familiar with me and they didn't probably didn't even know that we had this camera program and they didn't know what I was talking about. And then I got here and went to the first fire and then Carrie called me, so we now have a second fire. Now the second fire... Carrie and I knew he'd been back there. There were no firemen back there. And the firemen were so focused on the first fire, they were sort of ignoring Carrie when she said, uh, uh, hello, can someone please walk back here with me? Because the gentleman may still be back here who lit the fires. I mean, he was just here on these cameras. So can you accompany me? I was showing him the pictures on my phone. I said, we need to go down there so we can see what he did 10 minutes later after he started this fire. And how do I know he started the fire? Well, he was the only person on the camera and the fire's right there. 
Um, so I felt and still feel 100% sure that he started that fire because we caught him on both cameras going into the forest and immediately coming back out. So after having a fairly lengthy conversation with the CHP officer, he agrees that he will abandon his post from directing traffic. So he and I go down there, we drove our separate cars down there, we walked back into the forest where the camera R18 is, and when he and I got to the location of the camera. Sure enough, they found another fire. There was the second fire right in front of us. So that fire had not yet been called in, so we were the ones that found that fire. I just called the fire chief and said, you've got another fire over here, and kind of described to him where it was. As local people, when we say, you know, on the turnout by the boulders, everyone knows where that is. <laughs> so then the fire department came to that second fire. Now the fire crews are working on both of the fires simultaneously. And the news on the scanner is getting weirder. Uh, gentlemen, here's not a guy breaking in. It's the same description. I went to the second fire, and then another guy called me and said, because this gentleman who was a suspect had been seen in one of his houses breaking into it. Jack, at this point, has biked about two miles away from the first fire and is now trying to break into someone's house. He says he fired five shots in the air to scare him. The shots were fired. Oh, God, he has 78 shots fired. The homeowner shot a gun in the air to scare him off. And it, it did scare him off. But there was a lot of confusion locally as to who was shooting at who and what had happened. At this point, everyone is looking for Jack, who's riding all over town, apparently wreaking havoc wherever he goes. Well, we went looking for him. He got on his bicycle and he rode back through town. We were, look, we were putting the fires out looking for him. This whole time, Carrie and Sarah are texting back and forth. Carrie's at the scene, but Sarah's in the car listening to the scanner. They're filling each other in constantly. She can hear the second fire get called out. So she is actually texting me saying, there's a second fire, and I'm texting her back saying, I'm the person that found the second fire. She would text me and say, manhunt underway. And I would respond to her, I know, you know, because I'm there and I'm hearing everything. But it was actually helpful to understand what's going on on the scanner. Carrie is still at the site of the second fire when a concerned citizen from nearby Guerneville pulls up and asks to see the two pictures on her phone of the suspected arsonist. So I showed her the pictures, and she said, oh my God, I just saw that guy on a bicycle. When I was on my way here, he was heading towards Monte Rio. She said, I'm going to go look for him. And I want to say maybe it was somewhere between 15 to 30 minutes after I spoke to her. She called my cell phone and said, I just saw him walk into a house. And then a gal from Guerneville saw him and saw him go into a house. She said, I've called 911, you better come down here. So we all converged over there. So I went down there and when I arrived at that house. And the cops went in and found him and arrested him. Uh, he was being escorted out the front door. And I just walked up, got kind of close to him, looked at him, and I looked at the police officer and I said, that's him. The next thing Carrie did was text Sarah. She said, he's in front of me and he's in handcuffs. I texted her and said, he's in handcuffs. And that was right about the same time that she texted me saying, suspect apprehended. <laughs> And I sent her a text message after that, and I said, we did it. 
When Carrie called and said he's in front of me in handcuffs, I mean, I just shivered. It was crazy to think that it worked. He was in custody and the Warriors had won, but that was a pretty crazy thing. That suddenly, this gentleman we had been focused on for three months was suddenly in handcuffs. And that night he was charged with burglary based on the house he tried to break into. And then within a week, the charges were upped by the DA to 22 felony charges and a very large increase in bail. The majority of the charges are related to, to arson, you know, lighting a forest on fire. Jack Seprish is in jail at this moment, awaiting trial. He's pled not guilty to all the charges against him and maintains his right to be presumed innocent until found guilty in a court of law. Carrie and Sarah feel sure he's the one who set the fires. I know very little about Jack himself, but something seemed off with him that night. The Jack that appeared on camera that night looked wild-eyed. Something was up. I don't know exactly what motivated him to go on a bit of a rampage that day, but it started at the 5 and 10 cent store in downtown Guerneville around noon, where he got into an argument with an employee and someone had called the sheriff on him at that point, but nothing had happened. And then the, the day continued. Five hours later, he was setting fires. The thing that seems amazing to me is that our program actually captured him. It was wild. I couldn't believe we caught him. And hopefully will be used to, you know, convict him for his arson behavior. My wife absolutely thought that we were crazy, that we were spending three months out there installing these cameras, monitoring these cameras day and night. She was just sitting there looking at me like, you've lost your mind. Sarah's husband very likely felt the same way. I mean, how much time are you going to dedicate to what amounts to trying to find a needle in a haystack? That's really what we were trying to do. But it all worked out. Obviously, it worked out for us. It worked out for the community. Um, it's very sad. You know, there's this element to this whole story that's very sad, uh, that there's this person who's living in the forest, and I don't know what's going on with him in his personal life that he decided to, to start these fires, but we are glad that he's no longer doing it. It's funny, one of my neighbors came up to me the other day and said, you know, I just feel, I feel peaceful. I'm not suspicious about what's happening in the woods. I think that everyone in the town is sleeping better at night. Everyone just kind of gets to go back to enjoying their homes and their small town mountain life without having to worry about arson fires. I just think that these two ladies did more for us than, than anybody's done in a long time. I think it's wonderful they stepped up to help the community. Carrie and I are getting a lot of appreciation for making the town perhaps a safer place, but it was something that needed to be done, and we really didn't see anyone else that was going to do it. I just think what they did was the greatest thing they could have done. It was what you're getting to the scenario. Carrie and Sarah saw what needed to be done, and they did it and an unexpected friendship was born in the process. We're just a funny team. We're two women who both have had strokes, who find ourselves hauling a ladder up and down hills in the woods. You know, I love spending time with Sarah, uh, and I would love to spend more time with Sarah. We've gotten to know each other in a very unusual way, and I love her to death. But I'm glad that I have my weekends free, and 
I think both of us were pretty excited to get back to our normal lives. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Other music in this episode is by Miles Boyson, David Hughes, and Jeffrey Foster, all of whom have newly released records on the Susserus series, released by the Hickma Salad Company record label. I'll post a link on the website in the show notes for this episode if you want to take a deeper dive into their music. Thank you to everyone on Patreon who supports Nocturne. You are the best. Special shout out to Raf Leiden, who supports us at the Happy Possum level. You too can help the show by chipping in at patreon.com slash nocturnepodcast or go to nocturnepodcast.org slash support. Nocturne is now a proud member of the Hub and Spoke Podcast Collective, a stellar group of independent audio makers who believe that stories told through sound have the power to change minds and stir souls. Check out all the great shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I've been listening to member show Open Source with host Christopher Leiden. Open Source was the world's first podcast, and now it's also a weekly radio show on WBUR in Boston. They say they're an American conversation with global attitude, and I think that's very apt. Check out the episode from September 1st about David Foster Wallace and life in the internet age. It's so well-informed and thought-provoking. I definitely felt smarter after listening. Find out more at radioopensource.org. Finally, this show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. The midterms are coming, and it's more important than ever that we protect and fix our elections. I think one thing we can all agree on is that our government is having some trouble. The gridlock and partisanship are truly alarming. But if we work together, we can fix things. We partnered with Represent Us, a nonpartisan grassroots organization, to give you the tools you need to get involved. Now until November, there are opportunities to join a campaign to make our elections fairer and even sign up to be a poll worker. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. That's represent.us slash pod. Till next time, thanks for listening.